if you're afraid of success, acknowledge that and work through it. You're listening to Femcanic Garage, the podcast that features women in the automotive and motorsports industries. A community that elevates, empowers, and evolves by smashing stereotypes and breaking down barriers for women. I'm your host, Jamie Blossman. Buckle up for the ride, Femcanics. Calling all women who love their ride. I would like to introduce you to a one-of-a-kind women's motor fest. You will not want to miss this sisterhood celebration of women-owned whips, cars, trucks, motorcycles, ATVs. If it has a motor, it belongs. Ladies, this is our motor fest. Boys are welcome to attend but the spotlight will be owned by the women in their whips. Check out all the details by visiting womensmotorfest.com. Jessie Jackson is in the driver's seat today. Jessie is a businesswoman, investor in automotive businesses, and a proud mom of six. She is the owner of Mango Automotive and dubbed as the Auto Repair Queen. In 2021, she completed her first auto shop acquisition with $0 out of pocket. Since, Jessie has acquired multiple automotive repair shops, and there's no stopping her now. Now let's sit back and enjoy the ride. Hello, Femcanics. This is Jamie B. coming to you, and I have Jesse Jackson in the hot seat today. How are you doing today, Jesse? Hey, I'm doing great, Jamie. Thanks. How are you? I'm doing well. We were kind of chuckling a little bit where you'd mentioned it's earlier there than it is here. I'm in Eastern Standard Time. And let's see, you are on, is it Mountain Time? Yeah, Mountain here. Yeah, so it's a little earlier there, but I appreciate you inviting us in to pre-coffee or during coffee time (laughs) and jump into this interview and share your story. And the only woman I've ever stumbled upon in this industry, the way that I stumbled upon you was actually, I was in a training and I'm a serial entrepreneur and it was through a training around buying businesses. And you shared that you own multiple shops. I'm like, oh my gosh. So I looked you up on LinkedIn, did my stalking to make sure that you fit the Femcanic Garage profile. You passed with flying colors and I took a chance, reached out and said, would you be interested in being on the show? And you graciously accepted. It was fate. The the stars aligned us. It was fate. It was fate. And it's crazy because one of the things that I love about sharing the different journeys of all the different aspects of this industry is how women get into the industry. And the women who aren't in the industry that listen to the Femcanic Garage podcast have come up to me and said, you know, I didn't think I would be as interested in your podcast as what I am. What they came to find out is what we talk about on this podcast is real life things, what it's like to be a mother, an entrepreneur, be a mother in this industry. But one of the biggest comments I get is, wow, I never thought about being in this industry until I listened to some of the journeys that the women that you've interviewed and how they got into it and what they ultimately ended up doing in the industry. Like their minds are blown 
around all the different facets of it. So I have to ask, did you always know that you were going to be in the automotive industry? (laughs) Far from it. I sort of wandered into this space. Both of my grandparents were sort of in the automotive space. My paternal grandmother had a aviation repair shop and my maternal grandfather had a hit shop. So I feel like I grew up in those spaces and was comfortable, but I certainly didn't imagine it for myself. My degree is in environmental engineering and I worked in that for a few years. I had my first daughter during the 2007-2008 crash. So those jobs sort of evaporated And I found myself in the software building business for 13 years. And it just so happened that my last software project was in the automotive space. So when they kicked me to the curb for being the only woman in a male company, man-dominated industry, I thought that I was going to show them. So I actually have a plan to build another piece of software, but I'm doing that through acquisitions of automotive repair shops. And I find myself here. It's wild. But let me back up. Did you say hit shop? Like H-I-T? Hitch. Hitch. Like trailer hitches. Oh, okay. Okay. And I'm sitting there thinking, I'm like, hit shop. What is that? Okay. (laughs) Hitch. Okay. I'm following you now. I'm picking up what you're throwing here. So you stumbled into the industry and it wasn't planned. And you stumbled into it through design. Am I right? Like customer experience and design. Yeah, software design. Yeah, user experience design. And my background was in like chief product officer, which is sort of in the design space for building software. And I just happened to have a client that was in the automotive space. And I thought, well, as I imagine the next step in my career it sort of makes sense to stay in the automotive space since I'm already in it. When you first started working in the automotive space, what was that experience like for you? What did you think of the automotive space? Because you didn't like grow up in it, so. Well, you have to remember I came from software, which is like a very male-dominated industry. So I sort of landed in this other male-dominated industry. So I think from that respect, like I wasn't intimidated or anything like that. I'm like used to just fighting through those stereotypes because I've been in, I mean, engineering, software, and now automotive my whole life. But I think just like having my grandfathers, like growing up in their shops, like made me feel comfortable in that sort of, you know, like dirty space where we're working on cars. And I mean, yesterday I was at a shop just like sweeping up glass in the parking lot. So I think, you know, I feel pretty comfortable like in the actual shop itself just because of how I grew up. But one of the things in the pre-interview that I picked up on and I didn't dive super deep into it. And, you know, I shared this with you. The purpose of the pre-interview is kind of to get to know you a little bit, share the logistics of what to expect for the recorded interview, but also for me to just get a feel around where we could potentially take the interview, right? And sometimes that doesn't come through in written word. It's me observing body language and everything to figure out one potential way to take this. I love studying psychology and people. And one of the things that I have picked up in these, I would say, commonalities or patterns among successful women is... The most successful women that I have met and interviewed, they have one common thing 
all together and you fell right into this bucket, Jesse. And it is when they are told that they cannot do something and not even necessarily you can't do it because you're a girl. And for some reason, I don't know why. Don't get me on that soapbox. (laughs) (laughs) Women, right? That it's almost like a challenge. Like, hey, I'm putting the challenge out on the table that I don't think you can do it. And the most successful women that I have ran into is that when that gauntlet is put out there, it fuels their fire to another level. Now, I noticed that fire in you in the pre-interview where you shared a story with me that we'll talk a little bit about, but you know, what's done is done. But I want to give just a little bit of high-level background that here you are, you were asked to be a part of this company based on your customer and user experience and your product design, right? And not just as a associate, you were brought in as an executive. And then that company was bought and poof, you weren't involved in any of the meetings. You were excluded from things. And when I watched you, Jesse, there was this fire in you where I'm like, ooh, we need to bottle that up and teach how you get that. But tell me what is going on inside of you so that women start to understand that when you have those feelings, it's okay to feel it and it's okay to use that as drive. Yeah, I think that's a good summary of sort of what happened to me. Well, had a client that asked me to come on full time as an executive position when they were acquired It was a team of men doing the acquisition, 12 men, and they had one woman doing HR on their executive team. Here I am, the chief product officer, and they found exactly zero occasions to interview me, have lunch with me, talk to me about the future of the product. They were absolutely not interested in having a conversation, and they told me my position was being eliminated. (laughs) So there's a little bit like, in three years, I want to come back and say, look what don't you wish maybe you had had a conversation with me because I could have been very useful to you, but instead you didn't. And I think I don't have the energy to sort of, I think, you know, someone who worked with me there is suing them, another woman. I don't have the energy to follow that through in my life. Like I don't want to waste time there, but I am going to show them (laughs) by building something great that they will maybe have a tinge of regret about. And even if they don't acknowledge it in real life, it is sort of, it has given me some fire to show them up. I mean, they were a PE company, so what they were doing was acquisitions. So as I am doing my own acquisitions in the automotive repair space, it is a little bit to stick it to them. I love it. Like, here's the thing. I often wonder... When women have that fire, like what you are demonstrating and showing right now, how that's perceived opposed to when a man has that fire, right? And again, I will tell everyone this, and I keep saying this, this podcast in Femcanic Garage is not about male bashing. This is about shining light on areas so that we can educate and pivot and change, make some change, react and do differently, right? So that's the focus here. And part of this is having an awareness around that. I love your fire around it. There's a woman that I interviewed. Her name is Jamie Helm. She owns a shop in Chicago, a very successful shop. Her and her sister ended up taking it over from their late father. And he started not as a garage or a shop. They started it as a taxi company because another taxi company kind of screwed him in a way. So he's like, 
you know what? I'm going to start my own company and I'm going to get so big, I'm going to put them out of business. Jamie told me the exact years, but 20 plus years later, he was able to start with their own car. He took his wife's car and converted it into a taxi with one car, built a fleet and put that company out of business that had been in business over a hundred years. <laughs> that's the type of fire. That's what I see you doing in a few years. And it gets me jacked up and wanting to help you in any way that I can make that possible. And that's the sisterhood around all of this, having women like you. I love that story. And I think if I could attribute my what success I have had in my career to one thing, it would be that I just keep going and that I can't be dissuaded when other people stop, turn around, uh, take an easier route. I just keep going over that mountain range, no matter how difficult it is. What do you think is that thing that keeps you going, Jesse? That is a tricky question, Jamie. In some ways, I think it was just born or bred into me, or maybe because I had a hard upbringing. I always had to be, you know, tough as nails, even in my childhood. I think now, I mean, kids are an easy thing to say, like, I have six kids, you always want your kids to see you have drive because you want them to have drive. You want them to learn how to work hard and be successful. So I try to bring them into what I'm doing sometimes in the household I grew up. I never got to see my parents working hard in their careers or having business discussions. So I try to show that to my kids so that they will do greater things than me. Now, when you say you have a hard upbringing, we start filling in the story ourselves just so people aren't filling in the wrong story at a high level. What do you mean by that? My parents were usually not gainfully employed. They struggled with drug and alcohol addictions. We didn't have very much money. I'll just keep it to that. <laughs> there, there is a primer. That's fair. That's fair. And we don't need to go down far down that path. But like I'm saying, people fill in the gaps, right? And here you have six kids. And when you said that, I about fell out of my chair. <laughs> and for me, it's like once I start exceeding the number of hands I have, that's a lot of kids to me. It's too many for sure. I don't know what I'm doing with six kids. How did they get here? There's one or two I'd sell to you. The other ones I'll keep. Yeah, yeah. You know, and we joke as mothers about that, right? We would do anything for our kids. And we joke about those things. But it is different being a mother and having a career versus being a dad and having a career for most people. Absolutely. Was that your experience? Absolutely. It's still in the day to day. I think my husband, he tries to be woke and he believes in doing things equally. But I'm here to tell you it's not that way. When my nanny leaves, like I'm the one that has to be home or once in a while can coordinate with him to be home. I'm the one that's mostly getting up in the middle of the night because we have a one-year-old. I think, you know, there's like the gender sort of inequality that exists in the home. 
that doesn't exist in every home, but is really sort of hard to overcome, like what we saw our parents do. For sure, growing up, my mom was the one that did all the childcare and housework. And so we're so blessed to have a nanny and I couldn't do what I do without her. But still on the weekends and the evenings, I find that I'm filling in most of those gaps and he's working on his side hustle in the evenings and weekends and sort of has more flexibility than I have. It can be hard. And I don't know what the answer is, like how you develop a household where things are really even and fair so that your kids can model that. I certainly haven't. I haven't nailed it in my household, but I'm working on it. It's something that we talk about and sort of strive to. We split up the days like he was like, I'll do Monday, Wednesday evenings. You do Tuesday, Thursday evenings, but it doesn't always happen. And the baby, I'm still nursing her. So I've got to nurse her like every night. So I'm still like very much connected and don't get to check out the way he gets to check out on his off nights. Yeah, this isn't bashing men. This is just about awareness, right? And for women to have a career, it's different. There's just no two ways about it. I mean, your example here, nursing. Yeah. Yeah, you can pump. You can do those things. It is different for women. And the reality is it's harder. And men are celebrated. When a man travels a lot, it's ooh, providing for the family. If a woman travels a lot, Oftentimes, one of the first questions they're asked, even by other women, if they go to a conference and let's say someone you know well is there, oh, who's watching the kids? Yeah. Do you think men, when they go to conferences, are asked, oh, who's watching your kids? (laughs) I know. It's so hard to get the gender bias like out of our minds. I mean, I think it's the Harvarders at Princeton test on gender bias. It's crazy to say, like, even me, I have gender bias as well. Like, I have those sort of same ideas in my mind. And one thing you mentioned earlier about women in power is I've read studies where men in power are perceived as being like powerful, successful, it's all good. Like, women in those same positions who talk the same way are often seemed as being the B word because we just have a hard time connecting like women with professional success. One way that I've been really lucky is that my business partner and operations manager, Brian, is amazing. And I always feel like respected by him and that he gives me quality. He has a presumption that I know things instead of mansplaining things to me. So I credit in many ways his wife, Audrey, (laughs) for bringing him up to speed. Uh, I just feel like so blessed to have found like an automotive repair shop owner who doesn't have a gender bias. I mean, I've never been able to identify one. And I think there's an important message in that for all of us is that if you are experiencing that at your shop, at your job, and it doesn't even have to be in the automotive industry, right? is that it's a matter of finding your people and not stopping until you find your people, your tribe. And that's what this is about. That's how you gain that success. You don't do it by yourself, right? It's a matter of collecting the people and surrounding yourself. That's for sure. I think it's hard to be always surrounded by people who will support you unfortunately, but finding that crew is really important. I know us at Mango Automotive, I am trying to advertise our positions to women. I am 
excited to hire women, both service advisors and technicians. And I'm trying to create that culture in our business, but we're just one little business right now here in Albuquerque. We are expanding. I think it's really important to find people you can be supported around and as owners to cultivate that kind of environment where blatant, um, I don't know what you see in shops. It's like posters of naked women, like sexism, like where those things just are not tolerated. And one of our newer shops, we've heard that one of the technicians is sexist and we've hired a woman service advisor for that shop. And Brian, my co-owner and I have sort of said, well, we're putting a woman there anyway, because it's important for us to, you know, hire women. And if he can't tolerate it, then he's out. As valuable as technicians are and as hard as it is to find new technicians, that's not an environment that we're willing to tolerate. So he's going to have to change his ways or at least zip his mouth or he'll be gone. I'm hopeful that more business owners value quality, kind workers over headcount, if that makes sense. Because there are a lot of females who are struggling to find jobs and they're more than qualified to do the job. I will hire you. (laughs) Move to Albuquerque. (laughs) There's a lot of companies that are afraid to do and make that stand that you and your business partner are doing right now and saying, hey, you're good at what you do as a technician, but how you treat other people is unacceptable. Therefore, we're willing to let you go. For sure. And what our female service advisor, we moved her here from out of state. She Luckily, she had family here, but she had gone into banking. She had been in automotive. She couldn't get a job in automotive because she was a woman and she went into banking. So we were so lucky to find her and pull her back into the automotive space. But it's really sad and hard. I think it's hard enough for women in male-dominated industries. It's hard enough for women who are working because I recently looked at a study that shows the pay difference between women and men in almost every field. And you might get hired at the same pay, but within three years, there's a large pay gap. And we're talking up to 80%, sometimes 100% pay gap between men and women with the same qualifications. So being A professional woman is hard enough to begin with, like let alone drop you into the automotive industry. It is no surprise that a service advisor or a technician is going to find a job in another industry because not because they don't love turning a wrench or talking to customers, but because it is hard to be in an environment where you're not respected as a professional. Yeah. I know for me as an owner, It seems like it would be easier, right? But I have to use the tool of my male partner sometimes. Um, We are actively acquiring new automotive shops. And there was one for sale that we were interested in purchasing. I tried to get a hold of the broker for two and a half weeks. I emailed, called, texted him multiple times every week. Eventually, I'm sitting in the office with my partner, Brian. And I said, Brian, call this guy. Brian calls him. He gets a call back within 20 minutes. I have called this guy for three weeks, mind you. I mean, for me, I've been like in male-dominated industries for so long. Sometimes I'm like, okay, well, I have to do this like quote trick, which is ridiculous to have to have like a low voice on the phone to get a return phone call. (laughs) And I think it doesn't 
bother me personally so much as it shocks me because we are in 2022. I grew up in in the 1980s when I was definitely believed I could do whatever I wanted and there were no industries that were off limits. But it is still so hard in so many industries to be a woman. And that sort of like clashes with my childhood belief system and blows my mind. Like, I can't believe it. I can't believe I'm raising my daughters in the 2020s and they're going to graduate high school and college and go into the workforce and be in the same environment where they're going to be paid less. Like, I just can't. I can't believe that. It is mind boggling. And that kind of brings me to your name. Your legal name isn't Jesse. You made a conscious decision to change it to Jesse, right? Yeah, I am Jessica. That's my legal name. I've always gone by Jessica and not liked when people called me nicknames. Ironically, my parents thought I was a boy and they were going to name me Jesse. But when I knew that I was leaving even software, going more into the automotive industry, I'm sort of so tired as being of this sort of like tension between men and women and having a hard time getting hold of each other. So I thought that if I changed my name to Jesse, J-E-S-S-E, I would be perceived virtually in email mostly um, as a man and get more calls. I haven't done a double blind study, so I'm not sure that it's working, but it sure feels like it's working because I've been able to get a lot of male owners on the phone and I wish I had recorded some of their reactions when I'm a woman because the shock in their voice is <laughs> hilarious. And they're like, uh, um, is Jesse there? I'm like, this is her. And, and they say, uh, 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 <laughs> you know, I was just expecting someone different. <laughs> Okay. And I have to say, it's not like that all the time. You know, some owners who we've bought their businesses have definitely been accepting of me, but more common than not, they need to talk to Brian. And Brian's reaction is sort of like, I don't know, ask Jesse, this is her forte, not my lane. Yeah. But they want to have him on the phone or in the room. Oh, wow. So I want to talk a little bit about your business chops. Just through the conversation, people have picked up that you are buying shops through acquisitions. And this kind of brings me to how I stumbled upon you. I had an interest and I'm always looking at what I call alternative passive income options. And one of these trainings popped up, went ahead and signed up for the free like challenge. And you are one of the speakers on it. It's fascinating to me because it is kind of an alternative. It's not mainstream like stocks and bonds and, you know, buy a rental property and have passive income with rent. Like those are the more common ones. Not as many people talk about buying companies or small businesses, right? How did you get into that? You went from like product and user experience to (laughs) buying companies, like How did you stumble upon that? So I'm sitting in my office and I know that my position is being eliminated. I have three months heads up. Like they told me we're eliminating your position. So I'm like, what's next for me? And I've been in sort of fractional CPO work for many years. I am not particularly interested. Wait, slow down, slow down. What is that? 
Oh, fractional chief product officer. You might have heard of a fractional CFO. It's similar. You just okay. consult for multiple companies and serve as the CPO position. Gotcha. Go ahead. And I know that I don't want to go back to that because that is very much trading hours for dollars. So I want to do something different. Meanwhile, my husband, of all people, has been telling me for months that I should listen to this training. I don't know if I can say, but by Roland Frazier, love him, about acquiring businesses. And I keep telling him, babe, I don't have time for that. He has a PhD in nuclear physics, so he is always educating himself. He loves education. So he's always telling me like, oh, you should go through this training or this training. And I am like, Soren. I cannot do a training. Like, I don't have time. I'm over here, like, working full time. I'm pregnant at this point. Like, I'm exhausted. (laughs) You know, I start thinking about what I want to do, and it makes a lot of sense to me to stay in the automotive industry because that's the space I'm in rather than leaping to another industry. So I'm thinking about electric vehicles and what's happening in that space, and I decided I want to develop a software, essentially just a marketplace for EV owners to find aftermarket repair. And then I finally, I leave my company and I have a space to breathe for a minute. So I, I'm like, okay, babe, I'll do this training you've been bugging me about. (laughs) And he has already been through it and he's recorded it. So I listened to the recordings he has. And it's all about acquiring businesses for $0 out of your pocket. And I love it so much. I'm addicted. I immediately call Roland's assistant, Deanna. I'm like, sign me up for the next program. Sign me up for the elite program. Like, I'm in, I'm in. That was almost a year ago, a little less than a year ago. I did my first $0 out-of-pocket acquisition that December of our first Mango Automotive Shop. So that was really fun. And now I've done a couple more. And I'm taking a minute to grow those shops because they're turnarounds before I do more acquisitions. But I love it so much. And apparently I've been moderately successful because Roland asked me to be a coach for his team. So now I get to coach people on doing $0 out-of-pocket business acquisitions. And I think it is just the best thing ever. I don't know. I can't say enough good things about it to acquire a business that is already profitable that you've seen weather through recessions and to do it for zero dollars out of pocket it's sort of like how can you lose it is amazing it's It's a mind blow it's so good it sounds fake right it sounds like you can't do that but you can't actually do it and i've done it three times anyway highly recommend this is like mind-blowing stuff for ladies and this is what i'm saying your journey is so fascinating to me and here you are, you own three shops now? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And literally less than a year ago, you owned none. And you worked for someone else controlled your livelihood. Yeah. And now you're taking control of your own livelihood. I mean, I get goosebumps thinking about it. <laughs> Thank you for appreciating the journey. I feel like I'm in the journey, but it is really cool to look back and be like, okay, a year ago, I was like, I'm spending my savings to go through this training with Roland. I believe in it, but can I really do it? <laughs> but I think I like committed and just did it. And I had to conquer like a lot of fears in the process. For me, the way that I found shops is through phone calls, like cold calling. And cold calling gives me so much anxiety or it used to give me so much anxiety to do cold calls. 
And so now when I coach people, like I encourage them, if you really want to get started, it's only going to take an hour a day. Like you just have to, you know, commit to making these calls and find an accountability partner. I'm getting too in the woods about acquiring business, but businesses, so I'll stop. But yeah. I love your excitement about it. It's infectious. But you had mentioned something about fears. And I think that transcends any industry, any goal or dream or anything. I want to hit on that. There's a second thing that I want to hit on before I jump into that. And what that item is, is the fact that you invested in yourself. What I hear from a lot of women is what I observe is they won't get out of their own way. And what I mean by that, Jesse, is like what you're saying, like your husband's like, go do this training, go do this training. And there will be women who want to do the training, but they don't because there's a cost associated and they can't justify spending the money on themselves. It's true. Like what can you invest in? You can invest, you mentioned earlier, you can invest in stocks, you can invest in real estate, you can invest financially in businesses, or you can invest in yourself. Yeah, I'm sure there's other things, but those are the main buckets. And it can be hard to, to make an investment in yourself. And I think you know, even when I think about business for myself, like what's allowed me to sort of grow and climb these rungs has usually been to like invest in myself by replacing myself. So there was a time when I was like coding myself or designing myself, and I had to hire someone to do that. And that was a form of investing in myself, right? And training or education, it's hard. I mean, I have six kids. So, you know, I can invest in something for them, or I can invest in something for myself. I think which ultimately ends up benefiting them. It's true, but it's really hard. And another hard thing for me is travel. So, you know, part of my commitments involve traveling at least on a quarterly basis, but it's looking more like monthly now. And that's challenging. In fact, I have a trip I need to book for September, a conference for the Roland program that I'm a part of, and it's four days long. And I'm like, okay, maybe I should fly in the night of the first day so then I can still see the kids after school that day and then just stay for two days and fly out that next night, which conferences are crazy as it is. So, I mean, doing that kind of arrangement, not only am I cutting myself short because I'm not there for the entire time, But I'm exhausted because, you know, I'm just flying and running around all day. There's no time. I mean, I'm going to go to obviously like a nice resort. There's going to be zero minutes to like sit by the pool or relax at all, which we all know when you're a mom and a business owner, there's no minutes anyway to, to relax. So maybe I could schedule something in for that, but I'm just overtaken by guilt. So It's hard. Oh, mom guilt, sister, is a real thing, man. Yeah, every day. I just had my baby in the office because she was crying when I was leaving. I was like, okay, just come with me for a few minutes because I feel so bad. Yeah, and that's probably one of the biggest challenges. Maybe I'm speaking for myself, but I've heard other women talk about it. In being relentless and passionate about your business, your journey, building your system, building your freedom, your financial independence and freedom, right? And I feel like that's one of the biggest challenges for mothers is the mother guilt. It's really hard. It is. And I think part of it is just acknowledging it and finding a tribe that you can lean on to remind you that it's okay. You know what I mean? Because if you stay in it and you don't speak it out, 
isn't the self-talk of beating yourself up, like the internal talk, it's ruthless. Like, it's insane. (laughs) This is pretty bad. I think if there's something that's helped me, it's setting like clear guidelines, which I did not do a good job at this morning when I had the baby in the office with me, but trying to bucket my time. So this is my real work time. And if I'm gonna take a break during lunch to see the baby or, you know, stop working early one day to hang out with the kids and do something with them, fine. But let that be sort of like, pre-planned and very clear about like when I'm working, when's mom working. Sometimes I'm at the shop, sometimes I'm in my office in the backyard. If I'm here, there just has to be like really clear boundaries just for me emotionally and for the kids. So I think it's hard. I've done everything. I've been stay-at-home mom. I've been a stay-at-home homeschooling mom, you know, been full-time working with a nanny. Well, for me, I'm always like feeling bad for something and struggling through it. But yeah, if you think like, if I were to not go to this conference, because I feel bad leaving the baby, I'm hindering my career. So I'm not saying it's not always necessarily the right choice for you to like, go ahead and go to the conference. But I would encourage you to really think about that decision. And that doesn't make you a bad person or a bad mother for going. No, and they're going to be with their dad. So yeah, it's not like they're with a stranger. (laughs) I know when my husband walks out the door every day, like he's not feeling guilty for going to work when he gets home late. And I've already been home with the kids for two hours. He's not apologizing to me. That's right. uh, uh, Or the kids that he's home late. So, you know, maybe we could take a note from the men in our lives there. I think as moms, we're always doing the best that we can do and always trying to do the right thing for our kids and ourselves. Sometimes it's just hard to know what that right thing is, but it is permission to invest in yourself. Yes. Yes. We have to make it a priority as women because that's the next quantum leap for women. We have to get more money in women's pockets, right? That way when acquisitions are happening and you talk about that team of 12 men, that there's actually women on that group and in that board other than an HR person. (laughs) I mean, women are like women, more women are going to college, but that doesn't seem to be translating into women are making more energy or making more money into wealth. Yeah, into wealth and power. I mean, with that company that I was at that eliminated my position, they actually said, you can keep your salary, you have to take a job that has no power. So it was actually more important to them to usurp my power than it was my income, which is like really interesting to think about, right? Yeah. They didn't want you in a decision-making rule. Yeah. And I think the other thing is sometimes we're going to be perceived as like being a bitch if you're a woman who's in power. And I think you have to let that be sometimes. For me, I find myself, I really care about what other people think and I'm going to feel badly if that's how I'm perceived. I just watch my husband's career closely, obviously. And I find if I did the things that he did, that I would feel really guilty. But watching him, I don't think he should feel guilty about those things. He's just being powerful and in control, which is his position. So some of it I think is... um, And powerful isn't a negative thing. Right. That's the other thing. Like It's interesting because when power is associated with masculinity, it's okay. But women are taught that if you are a powerful woman, that you're too much. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And it's wrong. 
That's wrong. And I think it's also hard to perceive women as being in power. Like my business partner and I like have to be very clear. Like I'm not his wife or his partner in other ways. Like we are co-owners. Like he's naturally perceived as being the owner because he's a male and I'm naturally perceived as being, I don't know, something else. The administrative person. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Doing the finances in the back room. So yeah, I think it's a bit of mental gymnastics and we shouldn't have to fight for this. Like we shouldn't have to fight for this place. I don't know. We shouldn't have to fight to be in power. I can't quote the studies right now, but because women are better managers than men and it's like nine out of 10 categories, like women do better as leaders, but some people don't want us in those positions. There's one question I have left and then we'll jump into the red line round. But that question is you referenced earlier around how you had to overcome some fears in order to make that next leap in your entrepreneur career and start really moving into that financial freedom and financial independence space. What were your top one or two fears that you had to face and overcome? Okay, I think there's two different things. When you talk to successful people or Tony Robbins, you always hear about this sort of mindset that it's a mindset leap. And as I progressed through my career, I couldn't really see what I was missing in my mindset to go to the next level, but I can see it sort of looking back. You have to actually be able to see yourself at that next level. So I couldn't see myself owning automotive repair shops until I learned from Roland, until that felt like it was a real possibility for me. There's definitely just these mental gymnastics to overcome. And I don't I don't know that that was like a fear for me as much as it was just like needing to open up my mind to the next level. But for sure, at every stage, there is a real financial fear. Like I have six kids that I have to support. And every time I leap, it's a financial risk, right? When we talked about earlier, when I hired someone to do the coding that I wasn't going to do, that was a financial risk because I didn't know that enough business was going to keep coming in to support that person. The same when I hired a designer, the same when I opened my first shop or decided to go into this space? Like, was I even going to get a shop? Like, was it going to be able to pay me? And I think even at this stage for me, I mentioned my shops are a turnaround. So the shops are investing a lot in their own growth. And I'm like, okay, you know, I have to like make a certain salary just to be able to feed the kids and pay my nanny, like get by in life. Um, So this whole like exploration into business acquisitions, I make it sound easy and fun, which in some ways it was, but the fear was really and is still always like, am I going to make enough money to support myself? So it's crazy because I think I'm like moderately successful at this point in my life, but still I have this fear that tomorrow everything underneath me will like collapse and I will be left holding nothing and we'll lose our house and the children will be out in the streets. Like that is my real fear. And I think for me, like depending on where I am in my cycle, like near the end of my cycle, that fear is like really gets me. And I think like sort of growing up poor too, I say stuff to my kids that isn't representative of reality that is just coming from a fear place. Like last winter, my son lost his jacket and I looked at him and said like, I can't afford to replace your jacket. 
And my husband looked at me like, what? Like, certainly we can buy that child a jacket. But it just comes from this sort of like poor mentality that I grew up in and this like ongoing fear that everything beneath me will collapse. How do you keep going? How do you face that fear? Because clearly you're working through that fear because you're doing it. You didn't do it once. You didn't do it twice. You bought three, right? (laughs) Yes. How did you move out of the fear or through it? It's not out, but. I know. Yeah. What we talked about before, what I said, like my best advice is to just keep going. That's sort of my reaction. Like whatever's going on in my head, I just keep going. And for me, I know like what feels really bad. Sorry. I hear Dory's voice in my head. Who's? Just keep oh, swimming. Yes. Just keep <laughs> swimming. <laughs> Sorry. Right, like... <laughs> uh, what goes on, you know, I know I'm sort of like cyclical that that fear really rises up near my period and it sort of like chills out in the middle. So my conscious overrules my feelings and I just keep going, even though some days I want to lay down and die. (laughs) Curl up in a little ball, make it all go away. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) I appreciate your willingness to talk about that because that's another thing that as women, I feel like we're maybe unconsciously communicated that don't talk about your feelings and how your cycle impacts your hormones, your thought process, your feelings. You know what I mean? Like, don't talk about that because women are already perceived weak. No, no. When you don't talk about it, it implies shame. Like there's something wrong with it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like this way, our cycles, which are whatever, if you have a cycle 30 days ish, And men have a cycle too, it's 24 hours. (laughs) So it's interesting they've created a world that sort of relies on that 24-hour cycle. So I sometimes think about how in my life can I incorporate my natural cycles? I know that in the middle of my cycle, I'm going to be more willing to do a podcast or make cold calls or generally see other humans. And then, you know, how can I hide a little bit near the end of my cycle where I don't want to see anyone? Maybe you do the administrative stuff. Yes. Yeah, for sure. It's not that I'm not working, but can I change up like what kind of work that I'm doing at that time to suit what I want to be? I'm much happier than just hiding in my office on my computer, not seeing anyone all day if that's possible. An amazing level of awareness, Jesse. And thank you for being willing to talk about it because that's a topic that I don't think is talked about enough. Just recognize it, acknowledge it. You see it even from, well, I see it even from my little kids. Like the boys from the time they were little were much more open to like talking about their private parts than the girls are. Like they have this sense that what they have going on is totally normal. And the girls have this sense that, oh, we don't talk about that much. I don't know if you want to bleep this out, but if the boys mention their penis, like I'm going to mention like someone's like vulva because I'm like, that's normal. And then everyone freaks out when I say the kids are like, oh, mom, don't say that. I'm like, you just talked about your penis. It's the body part. Like If you're going to talk about your penis, then I'm going to talk about vulvas because they're not equivalent, but comparable body part. But why is it okay for men to talk about their stuff. But then, yeah, we have to be, you know, I think when you're successful, there is this sort of pressure to conform to being a man. Like you don't want to let it out that you're a woman and that you have cycles or I find it in myself too. Like, I don't want to talk about like nursing the baby, whatever 
sort of woman things I don't want to talk about. When I was pregnant with my first child, I did not tell my boss I was pregnant for seven months. I was so embarrassed at work. I couldn't mention it. Luckily, I had this tiny little body and really strong abs and I hit it very well. But that's crazy to me. Like, that's how I felt. And I think even pregnant with my last child, this is, I guess, two years ago, I still felt hesitancy, like talking about it at work, because I anticipated this perception that I would not be working as hard, um, that I wouldn't be accepted. So then I worked extra hard when I was pregnant. And even when I'm not pregnant, so that I'm not perceived, you know, as being lazy or not being able to do my duties. What would you tell women who maybe are currently pregnant or they're thinking that, hey, maybe I want to start a family? What would you tell them knowing what you know now? I think it's really hard and it it sort of goes back to what we talked about, like the environment that you're in. Part of the reason that I felt this way is I was in male-dominated environments where women needed to be more like men. I mean, that was the culture. If you can put yourself in a different culture, you might want to think about doing that, which is crazy. This is crazy. This advice is crazy. I even want to like suck it back in as I'm giving the advice because you shouldn't have to leave your job because you have boobs. Like, I don't know, and a uterus. So it is I feel like you're asking me, Jamie, like, how do we change the world? And I'm like, I I don't know. I'm trying over here to change my little (laughs) corner of the world. You try to change your little corner and maybe we'll come out ahead. But what do you do? It's a catch-22. It is. That's a great point. You either you stay and suffer. You try to change the culture where you are or you leave. Yeah. What is the right choice? That's a great point. It's the most honest answer I think I've ever received around that. (laughs) This is a great time to launch into the red line round. And what the red line round is, it's five rapid fire questions. No right or wrong. You didn't warn me about this, Jamie. (laughs) No right or wrong answer. Whatever pops into your head is the right answer. I don't have a cheat sheet. I'm not ready. Go ahead. (laughs) Who or what has been your inspiration throughout your journey in this industry? I think for me, just a little bit of fuck you to all the men who have undervalued me. (laughs) I I think that is my all time favorite answer to that question. (laughs) And I have interviewed over 100 women and I think it's my favorite one. Oh, I love it. (laughs) Two, where do you go or what resources do you use when you want to learn something new or you feel stuck? I have not been good about investing in communities. So I think I really have traditionally gone to the web. I can look back and see times when I would have been very well served uh, by having a mentor or a community to go to. We should all have that. I'm still working on getting one together. It's like a fast track. Yeah. I love that. I think, you know, if you think of Roland, that is like a community that I'm part of. And I think I'm such a Roland fan because he has transformed my life. And now I'm coaching in that community. So I would go to Roland or that community, you know, if I needed help or I felt stuck, I go to my husband on a daily basis because he is good at listening to me. I love it. Yeah. My partner for business stuff sometimes. Three, what excites you most about what you do? These are hard questions. These are rapid questions (laughs) with one word answers, Jamie. You're throwing like 
fastballs and I'm over here like, I thought you just told me you were going to give me a soft pitch. (laughs) I don't know. I love acquisitions. It's so fun. It's just, I'm always seeking the next thrill. I'm a little bit of a thrill seeker, which maybe some of your community is as well. I'm in it for the next thrill, the next acquisition, you know, the next level and profit that we reach. I just want the next little dopamine hit. Love it. What is a personal habit or practice that has helped you significantly when you feel stuck or discouraged? A personal habit. Just to wake up and do the thing that I don't want to do. So for a while it was cold calls. I think it's called like eating the frog first thing in the morning. That's the thing I do. It goes along with getting through that fear. If I don't want to do it, I know that I have to do it. So I better get out to my office and do the darn thing. Love it. And finally, what is your parting advice to other femcanics finding their way in this industry? An encouragement. Like you're already doing it. You're in the industry. I'm proud of you. Do whatever it makes you happy. If you're afraid of success, acknowledge that and work through it. That was amazing advice. This is probably my all-time favorite red line round. Stop! (laughs) Like I said, I've done over a hundred of them. And a lot of people's advice, women's advice, is advising women to not feel a certain way. You know, don't feel this way or don't do this. I'm not saying it's bad advice. I'm just saying you're going to feel what you're going to feel. Yeah. And you're going to experience what you're going to experience anyway. You can't tell someone not to. If you think of women as being more feeling, like we should not have to cut off part of ourselves just so we can be in this industry. Yeah. And that's all we've ever asked. Just allow me this space to be who I am at my core. And you're already given that space as a man right? They're already given that space. We're just asking to not give us their space, but to just honor our own. Yes. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Where and how can people connect with you, Jesse? So let's say a female technician hears this and they're like, Jesse's a badass. I would love to work with her. How can they reach you? Oh my gosh. I would be so honored. You can email me. I'm Jesse, J-E-S-S-E at mangoautomotive.com. Yes, you heard correct mango like the fruit. (laughs) Jesse, thank you so much for taking a chance on that random LinkedIn message DM that I sent you of this person that said, hey, I'm a podcast host. I saw you on this challenge. And thank you for taking a chance on it. Thank you for saying yes. And thank you for being a guest on my show. Just trying to support. You were a great host. Thanks, Jamie. Let's check in again sometime. Absolutely. My name is Jesse Jackson. I'm the owner of Mango Automotive, and I'm a Femcanic. Christy Shipke is in the driver's seat next. She is the owner and designer of Crash Jewelry. She came up with the idea to create fashion jewelry from wrecked exotic cars when she moved her studio into her husband's Los Angeles body shop. Christy makes jewelry from discarded automotive metal, and her first obstacle was trying to figure out how to bend the metal from the body panels of the cars while preserving the original factory paint. Tune in to learn from this UCLA administrator turned jewelry maker's journey. Until next time, Femcanics. 
Thanks for listening to the Femcanic Garage Podcast. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube at Femcanic Garage. Check out our website at femcanic.com for swag and the links to the resources shared during this episode. If you want to help grow this community, subscribe, rate, and review. And most importantly, share this podcast. Spread the word. This is Jamie B. signing off. Are you a femcanic?